How are you this morning? Good. Who was that? Oh, shark. <laughs> it's great to be together. It's great to unpack God's word. It's good to be a family, as Mark beautifully reminded us. It's great to even talk about money. It's great to be a family that cares about uh, serving each other. And uh, as long as we are a community, a church, we're going to have to have conversations just like these, where we go, how do we support? What does it look like to love and care for others and to uh, be that kind of community? And so this morning, we actually carry on looking at a story that we've been tracking with the journey of Exodus, whereby a community is being formed, a, a, a family of God is being fashioned. In fact, in some ways, they're almost being transformed. They've been slaves in Egypt, and that was not pleasant. Any nation knows that to be a slave nation is not favorable. The interesting thing is that to be a slave can at times become kind of uh, what you get used to. You think of even uh, difficult, abusive relationships. Some people think that that is the norm and eventually get convinced into believing that is actually a good thing. And they can't imagine getting out of that abusive relationship because of what might change or what it might look like if they were to uh, get out of this relationship. They might lose some sense of, of uh, finances or home or uh, relationship that they've become dependent on. <laughs> the people of Israel, Israel weren't that dissimilar to that. They were actually quite nervous and have numerous times where they go, it would have been better under Pharaoh's harsh r rule, uh, working 14-hour days, carrying bricks up hills with no identity actually being dehumanized all the time, that was better than being stuck out here in a desert with a new identity as the people of God. Because abusive relationships are just like that. And God slowly begins to take them out of Egypt, but as we've said so often, he also starts a journey of trying to take Egypt out of the people. To take the slave identity out of them and to try to help them to see that they are the beloved that they are the cared for. They are God's treasured possession, as we saw just now. This beautiful passage that they are loved by God and that there is a bright future. Now, this week I had a, a, a beautiful moment. I somehow stumbled across an old worship album. Uh, for those new to faith, there's a myriad of worship songs out there that are just beautiful to listen to. And when I came to faith, there was this particular uh, CD by a band called Third Day. Anybody heard of Third Day? Uh, yeah, you've got to be probably a Christian for quite a while to uh, know about them. But I uh, was... Uh, new to faith, and they were quite like popular at the time, and I had this CD that I think somebody gave me. And I cannot forget what it felt like to have spent the last, whatever, five, six, seven years of my life in a kind of slavery. The kind of slavery I describe is this slavery to uh, my own pleasure-seeking, just wanting to be pleasured by any which way I could go, whether it was... Uh, uh, relationships, sex, alcohol, whatever I could do to find my own personal, personal sense of pleasure. And, and probably the other enslavement that I was in was the enslavement to pleasing people. That just deep desire for people to go, you're cool, we like you, you're accepted in the group. 
And it's always a bit more subtle. Nobody goes, like me, like me. It's, it's subtle. It's in our behaviors. It's in our activities. Hey, it's why many of us don't want to pitch up at church because we don't want the feeling of being rejected or not included. Our lives are this deep desire to be appreciated. And I lived enslaved to that. By the way, I still sometimes do. But anyway, going back to the CD, I found myself in my early stages of following Jesus Listening to this album over and over and over, and this timid, fairly terrified little 20-year-old hears these words about God and his love, and that he is everywhere, and that he's with me. And this, this slaved, enslaved little boy begins to blossom <laughs> internally into a person who sees that he's loved and that he's cherished and that he belongs. And as I look at that journey, I wish I could describe to you those moments that were so ordinary in a tiny little room that a student can only afford with, uh, with all the memories of all the dumb stuff I've done in that room and in that world, suddenly listening to music and being aware that there is a God who created who cares for me, who wants to give me a name and a purpose and a plan. And the best word I could come up with as I look at that journey was restoration. It was as though God was doing this deep work of restoring someone from slave to son, from broken to increasingly whole. I wish I could say it all happened between 2003 and 2005. And here's the finished product. That just doesn't work that way, right? There's still stuff in me that's broken and still needs fixing. And there's still temptations and realities that you go back to the old slave self and you, you do stuff you wish you didn't do. But God takes the Israelites on a journey of restoration. He trying, he's doing his best to pull the Egypt out of them, to help them to see how loved they are. There's nothing more uh, amazing but also frustrating as a parent than when you look at your kids and you look at their behavior and you, you want to somehow just like squeeze into them their understanding that they are loved. And if they understood they were loved, they would stop doing all the dumb stuff they're doing. And you try to go, come on, wake up, you're loved. You don't need attention there. You don't need to behave like that if you just knew you were loved. But it takes time. And, and God starts this journey, and he's patient. Oh, my goodness. Is he patient? Thank God for his patience, because we wouldn't be here today if he wasn't. And this exodus, this particular moment, is a moment where God is bringing back or restoring the identity of these people. Now, what you probably wouldn't pick up as a first reading of this story of Exodus is that actually God is on a process of restoring these people back to the, the original Eden mandate. So you've got Genesis and you've got Exodus. And many, or most theologians will agree that Genesis is written much the same time that Exodus is written. So the creation account is written at a similar time that the Exodus is happening. Now, work with me for a moment, because what's happening here is that in the story of Egypt, as God pulls the Israelites out, he is restoring, he is starting a journey of restoring Eden. Now, you're going, just explain more. I don't fully get it. Well, think about it like this. First of all, in this passage we just read, it speaks about the fact that they would be a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Interesting. Where do you get that language from? 
Go back to Genesis. God created mankind in his image. He created them. I'm not making tenuous, strange links here. This is clear as daylight to anyone who understands what image means. You see, to bear the image of something was plain and simple to anyone in that time. It was simple. You walk into a temple, and if the temple was dedicated to the moon god, then what image would you find in that temple? The moon. And that would be the image to the god. You go into another temple, and you would find this image that it would be dedicated to that god. Now, you get to Genesis, and God says, I have created human beings in my image. And guess what? The world is my temple. I have created this world, and I am dwelling in the middle of it. And you guys, human beings, are meant to be my image bearers, the ones to whom people go and you meet a person, and you go, wow, who is your God? Because you look like him. And you say, he's the creator God. We're in his temple. This is the world. That is what was happening in Genesis. And in the story of Exodus, God is saying, I haven't given up on humanity. I am restoring the image of God back to people so that Eden can be restored. And he has not given up. He has continued to do that. And image bearers are basically priests. We're called to be those who reflect God to the world because we're in his world. There's a royal priesthood. There's the sense even in the tabernacle, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, whereby basically God says, now we're going to build a tabernacle. These people wandering through the wilderness, they're going to build a tabernacle. But as you look at the details of the tabernacle, it's filled with earth-like imagery. You see, what they're trying to say is this tabernacle is God in the center. He's the one who's at the middle, and the world is his temple. It's a microcosm of what is happening around God is the God of the world. We are in his temple, and we are meant to be the images that point towards the God. Are you tracking with me? Sort of. So what's happening here is that because mankind have sinned, because the image of God has been so tarnished, because there is so much brokenness, because they're so enslaved, the image of God has been shattered. Human beings begin to think of themselves as slaves, begin to not really understand who they're meant to be in the world, and so God comes and he rescues. And he starts a process of restoration, of restoring to people what it means to be human again, restoring to Israel, and he chooses Israel and he says, I am going to restore to you the beautiful image that is in me. I'm going to show the world what it means to be human through you, Israel. So we're going to unpack a sentence of how God restored then and actually how he still continues to restore today. Sound good? Thank you. That's better. Firstly, well, let's look at the sentence. He restores by grace, through covenant, for partnership. Three points. God firstly restores us by grace. Look at that lovely verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You yourselves have seen what I did, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I don't know if you know this, but mercy and grace are a modern concept. Did you know that? 
That, that prior to the bringing in of the church and the message of the gospel, mercy was not really a thing. The strongest survived. Go study history. If you could subdue a nation, if you could subdue a person, if you could do whatever you wanted to that person because you could, it was okay. In come the message of the gospel that says, no. And slowly, over 2,000 years, the whole West has become okay with saying, actually, it's normal to be merciful and to root for the weaker, and to give grace, and to give kindness to the weak. Only recently has evolutionary theory come about that says, no, actually, the strong should survive. And it's a terrifying thought as to where that trajectory might go if we in the West continue to believe that that is how we view humanity. Because the West was birthed upon the message of the gospel, which says, God loves by grace. And the story of the Exodus is exactly that. The, the Israelites had done nothing good. They were there enslaved, struggling their way through life. And God sees them, he hears them, and he moves towards them in beautiful and amazing grace. Reminds me of that beautiful um, story in The Lord of the Rings. Remember that scene where they just don't know where to go? It looks like everything is finished. And in come those massive, big birds. They probably are eagle-like. And they come and they scoop them up in their talons and they carry them to safety. And everything in you is going, whoa, thought it was over. They had, there was no other way but some air salvation that would come to them. The Bible describes, or God describes himself as one who swoops in and saves by grace. Just think about yourself. How can you save yourself? How can we find hope in a hopeless world? Only if God comes and does for us what we could never do for ourselves. If you don't believe that, the story of the gospel says that God tells us that. He asserts it, that there is no way that we as human beings can find salvation unless he were to come to us and save us by his grace. And then he does it. He does it in shadow form through the Egyptians and, and how he comes and he takes them out through the plagues and through the Red Sea and it's all just miracle after miracle and he does it in reality in Jesus. In that Jesus comes to live the life that all of us wish we could have lived. And then Jesus just totally unfairly gets killed and crucified on a cross to die the death that probably our lives deserve. None of us have lived the kind of life Jesus lives. And then he rises again and he says, this can be your new life as you trust in my grace. We can't save ourselves. We get saved by grace. And you know what? We continue to be changed and, and transformed by grace. How many of us struggle with being distracted in our prayer lives? You're like, I'm going to pray better today. And before, you know, a minute's out, you're thinking about the next meeting, you're thinking about, you know, the chipped tooth that you've got, and you're sort of like trying to work out if you should call the dentist or not, and, but, you know, there's just so much going on in your brain, and you're sort of going, what do I do? I heard someone recently say, you know what, you do what has always been done for a people who live under grace. You celebrate the opportunity to go back to Jesus. Ten times, over 10 times, you just keep forgetting him and you remind yourself he's gracious. Oh, I forgot. Oh, my tooth. Sorry, Jesus. I'm back. And you have me? 
Oh, I forgot about my meeting. But Jesus, I'm back. I'm back. And we live off of the, the wonderful scent of grace. We can always come back. Hey, secondly, he doesn't just restore us by grace, but also through covenant. So he has us because of nothing we've done, but he calls us into relationship and he makes a covenant. I wish I had time to go unpack this beautiful covenant that begins to unpack with this uh, people of Israel. They come into relationship with God. He brings them in and he calls them his own nation and they begin to move towards the promised land. And now he makes a covenant. Verse 5, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. They've done a lot of archaeological studies, and scholars recently found, when I say recently, last 100, 200 years, found some, um, some scripts of treaties that would be made between nations. And basically, you would get a conquering king who would come, and he would, save a na- he would conquer a nation, and he would bring them out and make them his own nation. And typically, they would make a covenant. They would say, if you behave like this, if you deliver so many you know, shipments of wood, if you make sure that you uh, don't uh, build your army too big, then we will look after you. We will treat you well. And if you make sure you send us this many slaves, we will not blah, blah, blah. And they are subtly filled with threats and promises, threats and promises. And these were the, the covenants that would be made between kings and, and sort of vassal kings, under kings. And uh, they would always have a kind of desire to sub- cause some sort of submission, to, to subordinate them under, to make them feel and make sure they are aware that they are lesser, that they are the junior party, and that if they get out of line, there's trouble. It's not going to go well for you. So God comes and he takes the people of Israel, he defeats the king of Egypt, he pulls them out, and he says, now I'm going to make a treaty with you. And you know, there are so many similarities to the kind of covenant that God makes that was made in that time. There are similarities, but there are also some real differences. The similarities are that there's conditions, that there is a sense of promise and covenant that's made. The difference is that this God who comes and makes a covenant, this king who comes and makes a covenant, does it out of love. He does it with a deep desire to do this people good. And he does it to provide dignity and to reveal what it truly means to be human, not to subjugate them under a harsh and horrid rule that makes them feel subhuman so that they never misbehave. So you need to see this, because so many of us, when we hear the law and the Ten Commandments, we often think, oh, it's terrifying. No, they were revolutionary rules to help a people flourish in a world that was filled with so much anarchy, filled with so much pain, so much murder and hatred. And God comes in and he says, I am going to teach you how to love. I'm going to teach you how to provide dignity of life. I'm going to teach you how to love me so that the world sees who I am and what love really is like. And the world has never been the same again since Judeo-Christian values entered into it. It is radical. I'm reading a book called Dominion by a a, a non-Christian guy named Tom Holland who tracks the story of of, of, uh, Christianity through the West. And it is unthinkable to imagine where we could find ourselves had Christianity, had the message of the gospel not uh, infiltrated society. If you're feeling brave and humble and you've got time, give it a read. 
But covenant does kind of fly in the face a little bit of some of us going, but what about unconditional love? You know, I thought God was unconditionally loving. What about the, there's a bit of a mix up here, because how can you give conditions if you're unconditionally loving? Well, my answer is pretty simple. I think love always has conditions. You ever uh, seen a parent go, no conditions, just go for it? No conditions, just, just play. You can, the street is great because it's hard. Sure, there's cars, but just enjoy yourself out there, man. It's great. Food, you know, the whole pantry, just go wild. The chocolate's the best. I really would advise that all day because it just makes you feel invigorated and alive, like more chocolate, more life. No parent does that. They, they say, you are unconditionally accepted into my love, into my care. But let me tell you, if you want to grow, if you want to flourish, if you want to be truly a healthy human being, there are obvious conditions. There are obviously going to be things that we're going to set in place that are going to cause you to flourish, that are going to cause us to relate well, and we've got to have them. And God understood better than anyone what was best, what kind of uh, covenant he needed to make with people. Had the privilege a couple of days back, uh, weeks back of, uh, of doing a vow renewal with friends of ours. And uh, it was such an amazing moment, 10 years after marriage, to stand with a couple and go, wow, you're renewing your vows. And we get to stand there and say a big yes to all the journey that has been uh, happening in this beautiful marriage. And it's not because it needed some fresh vow renewal because of any particular tragedy or, or difficulty. It's just because vows are precious. And I, I wonder if in our own lives we would do well to remind ourselves that Jesus has made a covenant with us. In his life and his death and his resurrection, he says, I am for you. And in his teaching, he says, if you love me, obey me. The resurrected Jesus, he stands up after he's resurrected and he teaches his disciples. And he says at the very end, he says, now go, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to, wow, you need to read your Bibles, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. He calls them into a covenant. He says, I love you. Now you go and obey me. Because if you do that, you will flourish. You will shape the world. It will never be the same again. Come into a covenant with me. But it's always got to be grace first. Read the New Testament. You'll pick up this pattern. Ephesians uh, 1 through 3, they call them all the indicatives. It talks about how God is madly in love with human beings, that God has saved us by grace, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. And Paul writes for the first three chapters, and he goes, this is indicative. It's yours. You can have it. It's free. Just take it. And then he ends in verse three, uh, chapter 3 and into verse 4, and he says, therefore... And he begins to say, now because of grace, you begin to live this way. It starts by grace, but it then becomes a covenant where we commit to following and to living in the ways of Jesus and to tracking his life. Romans, uh, he spends uh, 11 chapters, Paul does, talking about all the indicatives, all the beautiful grace of God, everything Jesus has done. And then in verse 12, he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, present your body. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. He's died for you, now you give yourself to him. Not to pay him back, not to earn his love. That's already been earned, that's already been done on, on, on the cross. Now you just say, here I am, Lord. Do with me whatever you will. Why can you trust him? Why is he going to be good to you? Because he has died for you. Because he has a track record of love for you. 
And in Peter's words, where else can you go? Working it out yourself hasn't worked too well. Trying to be the master of our own destiny just doesn't fly. He restores us by grace through covenant. He's calling you to say yes, to renew your vows. And, and you know, vow renewals in marriage may happen every couple of years, but vow renewals in a relationship with God probably happen every couple of minutes or days or hours. He, he loved us once and for all, and he's died for us, and so we are in him. But you know what? You wake up in the morning, and you don't feel very in him, and you pray, and you renew your vows. He doesn't need to renew his. His vows are set. He's loved you, but we forget. And we say, Jesus, I thank you that you've never let me go. I thank you that you always love me. And then by 10 o'clock, you've already forgotten. And you get in your car and you go, Jesus, thank you for your love. Oh, and you remember that scripture. And then by lunchtime, it's already gone again. And you find yourself learning to renew your vows minute by minute. Paul spoke about, I pray always. He lives in this beautiful sense of, I am always living in a renewal of my vows. It's my prayer life. I live in him, knowing that he has already won me. He restores by grace through covenant for partnership. Then in verse 5, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priests were very specific in their task. They stood before God on behalf of the people, and they stood before the people on behalf of God. Remember I said we are image bearers? We are called to reflect who God is to the world because we live in God's world, His temple. And here God is restoring their dignity and saying, you are a royal priesthood. Not just any priesthood. You've been brought into the king's chambers. You are welcomed into the very holy of holies. He has said through His blood, through Jesus, you are in And the people here are still sort of going, what does that mean? It means that we're called to be partners with him. It means that we're called to live in a sense of relationship where we stand in relationship with God. We can pray. We can know him. We can be known by him. And that then we get to move into the world and see the broken and the decaying and the desperate and the the, the sort of dis... uh, uh, Whatever. You keep going. There's so much broken in our world. And he calls us to partner and to bring his image back to the world, to bring his flourishing back to the world. That's what a priest does, reflects God back to the world. Just last Friday, a group of us, we made an announcement. You responded. Thank you. And a group of our people were at the TZN graduation, got to speak in front of 12 or 13 Danun people who lived there and got to encourage them and got to really say, well done, we are with you. Not just well done, all the best. Here we are, we'd like to build relationship because we want to help you to find employment and we want to be your friends and we want to utilize any level of influence or love or strength that we've got to help you to move towards a better future so that you can feel the dignity and the love of God on your life and your family so that you can somehow thrive and flourish in a world that is so broken. Well done, and thank you. We get to do that together. We get to partner with people and bring dignity and bring hope back. We get to image God back to the world. 
I mentioned the other day, I got to baptize someone, uh, and, and, and what a treat to, to be at a baptism and to go, this is the start of a journey, saying yes to the covenant of following Jesus, receiving his grace, and wonderfully saying, yes, I choose to follow you. That's what baptism is about. I hope uh, if you're following Jesus, you are baptized. It's one of the most profound moments in a follower of Jesus' life where you get to say, yes, I take your grace upon me. I receive it, and I come out of this water, and I follow you. And I know that I will make mistakes, but I will continue to renew my vows. He commissions a priesthood. We're going to watch a short clip, and I want to give you a bit of context before we do it, because this clip uh, has so helped me, and I think some of you have seen it. I may have shown it a couple of years ago, but there's a movie called Blood Diamond. Anyone watched that a long time ago? Pretty gruesome, not always great. Don't watch it with your kids. Um, But there is a scene that I would... I want you to see, because there's a guy named Solomon Vandy, who uh, basically is this father who goes on this adventure of trying to get his son back, and it's embroiled in all kinds of difficulties as he faces the challenges of a nation that's torn apart by uh, greedy people wanting diamonds to sell, and so they're on this search for this diamond, but really, he's not on a search for a diamond, he's on the search for his son. And his son has been taken, uh, sort of captured by these uh, sort of uh, rogue army type people, informal armies, and um, he's been brainwashed, as many people do in in Africa, and now he is part of this army. And we pick up the scene where this father is looking at his son, and I want you to just try to maybe work out, because this is partly Israel. Israel had, had the sense of enslavement and was struggling to relate to God as he brings covenants and he brings a new way. But maybe even to your own life as you look at how God might be calling you freshly into relationship with him. And I don't know what the, the gun may symbolize for you, but maybe you just want to look at this and watch it for a moment. And then um, I'm going to lead us into a time of worship. Maybe the band can join us. Let's watch. What are you doing? Dia! Nyangbe! Nyangbe! What are you doing? Bella Diavanti of the Proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister yonder. And you do, baby? The cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy. I am your father, who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. Wow. 
You just want to watch the rest, hey? <laughs> Maybe while I've got us in this slightly tender moment, I want you to feel something of the love of God. I want you to feel something of the mercy of God. The gun may symbolize whatever it is to you that maybe you're just holding on to, to say, God, I am going to defend myself against trusting you. Look what you did then. Maybe it's a story. Maybe it's, it's an offense. Maybe it's a fear of trusting him because of pain caused by others. Maybe it's a pain that you've been through in your own life and you simply hold it up and go, how could you let this happen if you're that good? And I feel like God is saying, I'm that good that I will love you despite that. I'm going to love you through that. I'm going to call you by my grace and I'm going to care for you in that. And of course, we know that he puts the gun down. He does receive his father's love. He does receive his embrace. He does go home to Babu the wild dog. He does go home to his family. He does go and experience all that God has for him. And he wants that for us. And I wonder if today, as we are singing songs of worship together, as we're together in this moment, that it would be more than singing, it would be an opportunity for us to put down whatever it is that we sometimes hold God ransom to. How many of us are maybe holding God ransom? We can't let go of that story. That's my identity. I'm identified because they did me wrong. What if I choose to forgive? What might happen? You know what might happen? You would enjoy his love more. What if I choose to just let go of that identity that I can't live without this thing? And God says, you can live without thing, that thing, but actually you can't live without me. And he calls us today to simply put it down, to stop playing this kind of game of, you know what, if you do, then I will. And we say, God, you've done it all in Jesus. I don't know all the details. Maybe for some of us who are brand new to faith, you don't know all the details. But you know what? You know enough to trust him and to say, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to ask you to walk with me and teach me what flourishing means. Not easy. There is some ch challenge in the covenant. He calls us to obey him, to set aside some of our preferences, to set aside some of our ways and em embrace his, but they're always for our good. Let's pray. Father, maybe we can stand together. As we come to you this morning, I pray for your help. Jesus, when you restore us, you restore us by grace through a covenant. You commit to us and you call us to walk with you and to partner with you. I pray the thrill of partnership would be high this morning. I pray that the wonder of covenant, of making a commitment would be immense today. But I pray most of all that the beauty of your grace would be overwhelming this morning because you are so good. Who are we that you would come with and, and pick us up and bring us with eagle's wings and cause us to soar when we have been groveling in the dust? 
Who are we that we, uh, in our anxiety and our fear and our stress and our discontent that you would let us in just a moment come to you and receive your love and be pulled out of that? We don't deserve that. Why would I be allowed to trust you, God, except by your beautiful grace? Jesus, we receive your grace, the hardest thing for any human being to do, and yet the most free and easy thing for any human to do, is to say, I surrender, and I receive your love. Not about me, it's about you. It's not about how strong I am, it's about how strong and kind you are. I receive that this morning. As we sing, Lord, I pray that this would be like popcorn popping up in this auditorium, faith stirring in us as we say yes to trusting you, that we'd fill this space up with joy and with life, with the sound of a grateful people who could never pay you back, but who will always live in the joy of your salvation. Let's sing.